0: to the joy of writing. I'm your host, Mark Carew. In this series, I will be talking to authors about the fun, the satisfaction, the joy they get from writing novels. Today's guest is Eleanor Anstruther, author of A Perfect Explanation, her debut novel published by Salt in March 2019. The story is a fictionalised account of her grandmother, Enid Campbell, who sold her son to her sister for £500. I asked Eleanor what had given her the most satisfaction in writing the novel.
1: Well, I think all the way through there were there were great moments of satisfaction. I know the opening the opening scenes with Enid, which actually is now chapter two, they were some of the earliest scenes I ever wrote, and they're pretty much the ones that didn't really get changed. Um, and I loved I loved uh, describing Enid in the old people's home. I've got a I've got a Obsession really with institutions,
0: right? (laughs) The trimmer,
1: the better. And I absolutely love and I love writing old people. Um, I loved writing her hands and the move, her movements, and her lying on the bed and the creak of her bones. And I I just loved getting into all of that. Um, I loved writing Finetta again. All of those parts I dropped in when I started re editing and putting it back together again. Um, and I loved her moments of silence, and and watching her travel about in her car, and and the bits with Fagus. I mean, there, there are the scenes in the school which were heartbreaking to write. Yes, it was indeed. A joy and purity to them as well. They didn't get. out they, they pretty much came out as they are published, and and I really loved getting to the heart of those. However, distr- very distressing. But there's a real purity, I think, for all us writers. The, Great joy of it is when you just hit that mark, yes, and you get that you you're right next to the heartbeat, and it's the most exquisite feeling, and it's definitely what keeps me in. I, I yeah, you know, there's nothing like it in life to me than that feeling when you're you're right, you're you could the heartbeat's in your ears, and you're standing right there, and you're touching it. It's absolutely amazing. So, um yes,
0: yeah. great So it's uh, when things start to sing, and you know you've really hit the. uh you've touched
1: it it's Um, absolutely
0: amazing you mentioned um, obsession with institutions is that from are you sort of recalling a time in a care home or a school that type of thing when you write your scenes
1: Um, no not really I don't quite know what it is about institutions that I love in my second book there are a lot of scenes um, in a mental institution again it's the same thing it's something about the formica
0: right
1: (laughs) I just can't get enough of it. Um, And I think it's something to do with what happens to the human when they are in an institution, what happens to the mind. Yes. Um, I've been thinking a lot about that, being in lock-in. Here we all are in lock-in and also lock-in in our bodies. You know, we're imprisoned in so many ways. Yes, um, and um, and there's something about putting the human in an institution, a very real one, like an old people's home or a school or a prison, or and th- what happens to the human mind is fascinates me. Um, and also, I suppose as a writer, my character they're they're captive. I mean, literally, they can't get out. I can watch them, <laughs> in,
0: yeah.
1: in their chair or whatever they're doing, and, and uh, yeah, there's something about it. Something about the gnarliness of it. I love.
0: Do you, do you think with institutions once you, you you're in an institution you have and you're given a certain role that suddenly makes life easier for you in a way you know you are, here you are in a hospital you're going to be a patient today or um, yeah. or you know in school uh, a lot of people love school because it's of the ordered nature of the school they're the pupil the timetables laid on for them yeah, there's
1: something very much of the giving over of responsibility of your right. life to rough. that um, structure I'm also fascinated by cults and in my third book I'm writing I've, I've been in a cult and yes. um, I've, I've got various friends who've been in cults and again uh, what draws us to it and why is it some people or the army again you know yeah why yeah. is it that people are drawn to those places and some some people they get a huge sense of safety and satisfaction from having their walls very much contained, the rules are there and all the rest of it, um, and what impulse is that in the human to want that and is it a product of some sort of trauma, or is it a natural state that we just wish endlessly for mum and dad to be there, or God or whatever, yeah. is, the authority figures to tell us how this thing works
0: I think it, it might be something like that as you say, abdicating responsibility it's very hard to think of for yourself the whole time,
1: yeah, could be an adult <laughs> Relentlessly be an adult, and when we're here, we are as adults, um, yeah. and you know there there is no absolute I don't know what what this is you know I was occurred to me yesterday I was sitting there listening to John Lennon uh, watching the wheels go round, and there's a line in it where he says, I'm just sitting here doing time. yeah, and I thought to myself, what if that's it? What if we're all just doing time and none of this career and achievement and th- doesn't really matter? you know but and also what when if you really are doing time if you really are in prison i've got various friends who've been in prison for various things um and for, you know those who come out of it rehabilitated or have got something out of it or those who don't and find themselves going back into that system again and all of that sort of stuff um and also what do we do if we are just here doing time do i still write right. and the answer is yes
0: Yes, yeah, so you you quickly get to the question: What is the point of things?
1: Exactly. What is the point yeah. of having to relentlessly answer that question for yourself? It's part of being an adult, yes. and it's tiring. And sometimes I want to hand the whole thing over to <laughs> someone else too. But I'm not particularly inclined around religions, doctrines. I can't do that kind of no, thing.
0: No, no I, I, I I could see that, and in, in the way you portrayed the cult, the Christian Science cult, exactly. which uh, Enid um, retreats to. Yeah. Um, do you do you think she did find some comfort and solace in that?
1: Yeah, I think so because I think one of the things about being in a, one could call it a cult, or you could just call it a religion, or a very yeah. systemized doctrine. Um, there's somebody um, taking notice of her, giving her attention, mm. which is something she severely lacked. She mattered within that system. That she was also one of equal uh, of many equals which was completely unlike the system that she came out of, which is, again, a very very much... The other thing I'm really interested in is the cult of family. And yeah. she was coming kind out of a particular cult of her family where the laws and the rules were certain, do this or don't do that, and if you do this, you will be thrown out, and so on. So yeah. she left one very clear cult, and also her class is very much a cult, and went into another, which had a completely different set of rules. And I think it allowed her brain to just stop and spread out a little bit and mm-hmm. get some sort of rest. Um, and but the, the mistake she made, understandably, because there was no one, she didn't have any in between, was to go from that cult straight back into the cult of family.
0: Yeah. And,
1: um, obviously, was just thrown all over the place by it.
0: She didn't, I suppose, have very many options in such a patriarchal society, and and she was uh, she was trying to navigate. Um, the strictures she was living under, I mean, the idea, of course, the the inheritance um, was massive. Yeah. And um, they're all deeply embedded in this situation. Yeah. It would have been... I don't know what she could have done. Really. I don't
1: know what she could have done either because within that system, you know, she may have come from a very privileged family and background, but in terms of, of hierarchies, she was the bottom of the rung. Yeah. She was a woman with no means... No education in terms of being able to, you know, go out as as we can and go out and, and get a job. No yeah. job available. Didn't own herself pretty much, let alone anything else. So what could she have done? You know, I don't know either. And it was the turn. You know, there they were. It was nineteen. Uh, so between the wars, anyway. Nineteen mm. twenties, um, and the world were waking up. Um, women waking up. Um but she was still caught between those two worlds, and I think her options were limited in so many ways and and she was damaged and traumatized
0: yeah. oh yes definitely you you could see that so, I mean I think somewhere you say in the book that you you know the mothers have it the hardest um and um you cannot guarantee you know a mother 's love for a child you know that's that's you, you can 't always assume that will happen and um, so, I was thinking, you know, I, was very, I very much felt for Enid um, as the character where, really, she was in, a, in an impossible situation. Yeah. She tried to do her best within what she, you know, you know within her capabilities.
1: Yeah. I, I, a lot about maternal ambivalence. That's one of the themes, right. of the, really, that I really explored.
0: Yeah. And
1: I, I, I questioned for a long time whether she began ambivalent or whether what happened with her eldest son, Fagus, caused mm. her to choose a place of ambivalence as a, as a, as a point of uh, self-protection. And these things we will never know, so I had to make decisions in the book.
0: Yes. Um, d- during the writing of it and thinking about it, and uh, if you were at all able to stand back from it, did you think of a modern solution to the problems, which would have been no use then because those were the times. Um
1: Yeah, I mean I think um grief counselling would have been one right. of it. Yeah okay you know, goes right back to the death of their brother which began the whole inheritance question. Yes. yes. Um a sense that um girls were as equal to boys in terms of inheritance. So the middle child who was the girl finetta. Yeah why wasn't she in line? Um, yeah. And some sort of family healing. I mean, these are very modern words. They would have yeah, yeah. gasped the, the very, uh, uh, to hear of it.
0: What, but, what do you think they would have said in the time if, if you know, um, a time traveller had turned up and said, Guys, now listen.
1: Yeah, they're more important. I think that the level of discomfort would, would have been so great... That they mm. would walk out of the room, and I, and a level mm. of the being that you, you know, to to sit there and look at each other as human beings, yes, and say, okay, look, what's most important here? Is it most important that we stay, and we have connection with each other, and we find our humanity, or is it more important that that a particular child inherits a lot of money? I mean, really, you know, if we could have ta- if they if they could have talked in that sort of language. I think maybe they would have got somewhere because they were humans. They were people. Yeah. They had hearts. They cared. They cried. But but they're so far from that kind of language that the discomfort. I mean, if I imagine my father, who mm. you know, he would have found that language pretty uncomfortable, and he was you know one generation on from them. So
0: yeah,
1: yeah, I think. Did pretty- they
0: have, as a family, many, joyous, uh, memories or occasions to look back on? That they could sort of use as a as a way of bonding again and and coming together.
1: Well, I suppose I imagine when Ivor was still alive, he was very much golden boy, coming. And, right. I mean, and I think when they all lived at Inverary, which is the most idyllic fairy tale castle. Yes, one of the most in Europe, really. I mean, it's an incredible place. Um, and I think when they lived there, um, and their uncle was married to Princess Louise and it was before the war and Ivor was still alive and all of those things, I think there would have been happiness there. There would have been a sense of everything in the right order and they all knew who they were and not, no enormous world or familial tra- tra- tragedies had happened. And,
0: yeah.
1: And perhaps there. But also I think the love of the children, they all did love those children
0: mm. and
1: that would have been, I think if I'd been their therapist and they had asked for a family meeting, I would have probably... Uh, Beckons to their sense of love for the, all the children, Fagus, Fanetta and Ian, my father. Yes,
0: at them first. And somehow...
1: Ground between them, that they all loved them. So there's a piece yeah. of ground, you know.
0: Yes. Because, I mean, as it is, um, and it's a shame we don't have the time-travelling oh. uh, therapists to have helped them out. Um, it, it came over in the book that, unfortunately, and by no means, you know, um, uniquely... It was a family where people didn't really like one another a great deal, yeah. and that that was a that was a real shame. Um, yeah. And then when you were looking for characters who did actually like each other, of course you had to then look to people like Joan and Pats. Yes, who
1: where,
0: were where, where they did like each other.
1: They absolutely loved each other, and they yeah. were gas to write. I mean, that again, going back to the joy right. of writing. they were real fun and again you know for the first seven years when Enid wouldn't turn around and just stared out the window playing with a ring on her finger I had Joan and Pat in the studio drinking cocktails smoking and having a right laugh and they really took over I wrote two uh, two whole books uh, with just them as the central uh, characters and their love affair and all the rest of it
0: oh that's fantastic they
1: were a joy you know they were brilliant
0: and how did their story go I mean again this is all imagined story um yeah. How, what do you imagine them them doing?
1: Well, I mean, they did. I know pretty much what did happen to them. They carried on living in Cumberland Place in the flat there. Mm. Um, we had a housekeeper who used to work for them, so we knew right up to the end, um, you know, how they were and and what happened to them. And they lived out their life together in that flat. Um, the last closing scenes in the book really were taken from there, and the conversations were taken from there. Um, and they had a happy time of it. They lived an extraordinary life, very bohemian. They were very much involved in the Bloomsbury group. They yep. were, were always going off to Monte Carlo and out to Egypt and smoking Turkish cigarettes, and, and really ahead of their time, very wild, amazing women.
0: Yes. Yes, I mean, they, they, they were a breath of fresh air in, yep. in the book, um, and it's, it's good to hear a um, happy tale there. At, at the end of the book, with Enid and her last days in the, the home, yeah. and Fenetta there, yeah. um, that was a very touching moment. How, how did you sort of come to be guided by how Enid's character should be?
1: Well, I very much had to watch her. I mean, never have I worked with a character before who's taught me more about sitting and watching and waiting, and Enid was there, partly because she's really obstreperous, mm. And, and also, I had to keep trying to find what, you know what's something about her that was fascinating. And she was very clever, very godly, very spirit, you know, she's really like yeah. her. Um, and I, I literally, I just watched her. I watched her move across the room. I watched her with her stick. I watched the way she behaved. And I was led by that. Um, I knew that, that my father had gone to get the picture. Yes. It was not the same as him. And I knew that something had happened with the ring. Um, and so I just sat there and watched and take out the biscuits and put them on the thing. And, you know, I just I just watched.
0: You, you kind her. of knew exactly how, how she'd behave. Um, well,
1: I, I didn't know how she's going to behave, but I, but I watched to see how she behaved. And then right. wrote it down.
0: Yes. yes. Um, what was the reaction when you finished your book from your from your family? Did they did they have any comments on
1: Yes. They, I've got lots of advice if you do another podcast around advice for anyone writing autofiction. <laughs> yes. Um, because I think one of the things was that I had um, I'd spent 10 years with this book. Yeah, and I was very used to it, and I'd really processed a lot of the trauma and grief that's contained within it. Yeah. And for them, even though they knew I was writing the book, they hadn't actually held it in their hands. So when they did hold it in their hands... I was quite blase about it, I, and I was excited. Look, I've, I, you know, I've sold it to Salt. Amazing. Do read it. You know? And they were really sh- they were shocked. Yeah. they would shocked that I'd done it. They were shocked to hold the living, breathing book in their hands. The, our family, um, the, all of the grief and, and trauma came right up at them for the very first time. Mm-hmm. So it took about a year, of, uh, you know, and I had to really pull back and think, just imagine. Remember what I was like in my first year of uncovering this story? Yeah. I was them um, so I really learned to pull back and just let them process and it, t- it took a long time um, because it's as much their story as it is my story and and I just happened to be the one who wrote it and now my version is written in stone there it is it exists right. and all of these things there's lots and lots to do with the process of it which I learned probably the hard way because I was just really excited that I'd done it Um
0: but I, I mean, I, one of the joys of writing is to finish what you intended.
1: I mean, it's amazing, isn't it? To see, you know, well, there it is in your hand. You can see yeah. all that work. And I think anyone who doesn't do it, it's impossible, like with any medium, to explain quite how satisfying it is to have the book in your hand, even though I think we all write whether there was a publishing industry or not.
0: But right. there's
1: something about that final um, occurrence, really, that just it does complete something. And I, I think this with plays and all kinds of things, the reader brings the last piece of the puzzle to the book. Yes. do so they do um, complete it.
0: I mean that's very interesting what you say, even if there weren't any readers yeah. um, of your work, uh, does it give you enough joy and satisfaction etc. for you to just to do it anyway?
1: Well, I would do it anyway, I, that much I'm, I'm pretty clear about. Mm. Um, but I, I really, it was one of the issues I really struggled with over the 10 years of writing it because I felt so strongly that I wanted it published and I really needed to examine. Was it for my ego? Right. Or was it for, you know, did I think, was it about success? Blah, blah. But actually, I, in truth, I think because there is a final piece of the puzzle, which is a reader. So I would carry on writing if I were the only person on the planet. Mm. But I would miss that bit where it gets reflected back, where I hand you my book yes. and you see it in you know, because there is something valid to that which isn't about ego, it's about the work.
0: Yes, I mean, it's the fascination of what people think about what you've written and the bits they uh, they catch on and um, yes. enjoy, the, and everything else might be missed or something. But uh...
1: the questions they ask and the realization of it
0: hmm. into
1: the three dimensional world, there's something to it, undeniably c- uh, c- completing about that process.
0: Quite right. Well, it was a fascinating and fabulous book, um, and it's been a pleasure to talk to you about it. Thank you so much. I will be talking to Eleanor Anstruther again in another episode, when we find out about life post-publication and how she approached writing books two and three.